Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from Good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for today. My name is Alan Ruff. Today we are joined by journalist Timothy McLaughlin, a contributing writer for the Atlantic magazine. Currently based in Singapore, he primarily reports on politics, societal change, and tech news throughout the broader region. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, Wired Magazine, Foreign Policy, The New Yorker, Prospect Magazine, and numerous other international publications. McLaughlin was part of a team at the Washington Post that won the 2020 Human Rights Press Award for investigative feature writing and the Yam Yu Yu Press Freedom Award for a report on the misuse of force by Hong Kong police during pro-democracy protests. Today, we'll be discussing his May 14th piece in The Atlantic, The Price of Being Principled in the Philippines. It's in regard to the case of Lila de Lima, a former Philippine Secretary of Justice, currently imprisoned and facing a possible life sentence on apparent trumped-up charges for criticizing the regime of the autocratic Rodrigo Duterte, former but no longer the president of the Philippines. Well, welcome all the way from Singapore, Timothy McLaughlin. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with some background for our listeners. First off, who is Lila de Lima? Tell us about uh, who she has been, and how you describe her as a previously be, being a crusading justice secretary. Sure, yeah. So she was, um, you know, a uh, lawyer um, from, from a family of lawyers. Her father was also a lawyer. Um, so she graduated from law school. Uh, in the Philippines in like the late 80s, um, became a uh, worked for, for uh, a member of the Supreme Court for a while, um, and then uh, went out and became a lawyer uh, working on election law, actually, which was fairly kind of new at the time, because obviously, uh, you know, Ferdinand Marcos had been in power for, up until 1986, so the, the, you know, the elections that were happening. Um, you know, at the, at the time, well, during martial law and things like that weren't really happening. So, um, so uh, she went from there on to, to uh, from election law to kind of, you know, human rights law and, and was named the Secretary of Justice, um, and served in that position for, for a while, and then uh, left to run for, uh, to run in, in, the election in 2016 in the Senate um, was elected then. Um, and during the time, I guess we'll get into a bit more, but um, she had kind of become by then the kind of biggest critic or almost outspoken like critic domestically within the Philippines of, of Rodrigo Duterte's, um, I guess the drug war would be the title that it's commonly referred to as, but you know, his attempt to sort of stamp out drug use in the Philippines, which, um, you know, obviously, uh, went well beyond that. So, 
So how did uh, Lila de Lima wind up in prison with the possibility of a life sentence hanging over her head? Clearly, you know, as you just stated, he, she became a major adversary of uh, Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, yeah. But she was arrested in uh, 2017 on, on drug charges? Yes. Uh, so um, I think it's probably the, the real maybe um, kind of... Uh, you know, issue between her and Duterte uh, goes back to twenty two, like two thousand nine, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when she was um, the head of the country's Human Rights Commission. Um, and at the time, uh, certainly not the media attention that it got later on, but there was already concerns uh, from human rights groups in the Philippines, outside of the Philippines, some UN officials about what was happening in Davao City, um, about extrajudicial killings, and about kind of you know, police vigilantism, again, uh, under the cover of this war on drugs. And, and at the time, Duterte was the, the mayor of the city. Um, so all the way back um, now, uh, looking back, I think we could probably see that, that when she first kind of tangled with Duterte a little bit in 2000, uh, 2008, 2009, um, obviously he wasn't president at the time. He was just the mayor. Of, he was the mayor of Davao. Um, had been the mayor there for a very, very long time, was extremely popular. Um, fast forward to 2016, um, when DeLima was elected at the same time uh, Duterte was elected president. Um, and so there was already, I think, uh, you know, she already had, had kind of not gone after him, but had kind of like looked into to, to, um, him a little bit already. Um, and then started another investigation from her position in the Senate into what was <clears throat> into the uh, drug war kind of killings. In, and um, Duterte obviously uh, did not take kindly to that, um, you know, made a point of kind of publicly naming and shaming her. Um, and uh, eventually she was arrested, in, like you said, in 2017 on, on charges um, that at the time, I guess, were very uh, they looked politically like motivated at the time, um, you know, since it's gone on now that the case is dragged on forever. And, and, and there's only one charge out of the three left. The, the other cases have, have fallen apart, um, the government's cases against her. Um, so only one case uh, remaining, uh, though she's still in jail um, and is not uh, on bail out on bail. So she's spent the past, since 2017, uh, in prison. Um, so the, the last case, uh, or the second of the three cases was just dismissed, uh, last right before the, the, the I wrote the story. So, um, in, in the beginning of this month, uh, so one case remaining, uh, which, uh, still waiting for the decision on whether that will go forward or not. You're listening to Journalist Timothy McLaughlin, contributing writer for The Atlantic magazine. Uh, we're talking about the case of Lila de Lima and the broader context of contemporary Philippine politics. Give us some context uh, in regard to Rodrigo Duterte, his background, his rise to power, the nature of the regime uh, that he headed as president from 2016 to 22. Yeah. So I think, um, 
you know, Duterte, uh, you know, had served as a longtime mayor in Davao uh, City in, in the southern Philippines, um, had had a, and had within the city, um, you know, was tremendously uh, had a lot of you know popularity, um, and he really in in, in Davao had this mantra that carried through to, to when he was, you know, like the president was an extremely hard line, especially when it came to um, to drug uh, users, pushers, as he called them, low level kind of drug dealers. Um, and in Davao, he had, uh, well, there's, you know, a lot of reports from, from human rights groups and stuff that he had essentially allowed, or maybe himself even at times partaken in, uh, essentially, you know, death squads that 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 were that were allowed to kind of act with impunity uh, to enforce, you know, the hard line against uh, against drug use, in particular, drug use in particular. Um, so he was elected in 2016, um, and I think at the time, maybe from from the U.S. side, it was it coincided with with Trump's uh, around the same time that you know Trump was was on the campaign trail in the U.S. There was a lot of uh, people saying you know Rodrigo Duterte is kind of the Trump of the Philippines and stuff, which I think maybe obscured um, quite how serious like the situation was uh, in in the Philippines. And then you know what he campaigned on was sort of uh, to bring that kind of hard line justice that he had claimed they had meted out and devout to the country. So almost immediately after he was elected, you see this kind of drug war, um, you know, ramp up and you see the number of people getting killed kind of uptick like pretty quickly. Um, And I think uh, human rights groups who had been kind of watching, you know, in the Philippines and abroad who had been kind of waiting on, you know, his election uh, sort of flagged this thing very early. And then there was a lot of media attention domestically, tons of, um, like hardworking Filipino uh, photographers, journalists, kind of, kind of uh, collecting these stories of what happened. There was a lot then of international media attention that followed. Um, initially, the International Criminal Court um, uh, began a probe into the killings. Um, you know, I think there, it's very unclear as to how many people exactly died uh, or killed during his time in office, but. Um, and so the International Criminal Court has begun probing, you know, what happened. That's obviously it, the wheels of international justice take a long time to turn. So uh, I'm not sure what exactly will come of that, um, but it's gotten to that to that level. Um, and then, as you said, because of pretty strict uh, term limits in the Philippines, he left office uh, in 2022, um, though his daughter is now the vice president. Um, so still has uh, some... I guess inroads uh, to the highest levels of, of of kind of power. So six years now after De Lima's arrest, <clears throat> with the Philippine under a new administration, that of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., you've noted that the government's case uh, against her has hobbled, continues to hobble along, as you as you referenced earlier. You cite De Lima's case as a symbol of the country's degradation from the Duterte years of violent populism and autocratic slide. You quote DeLima's former chief of staff as saying that her case provides a snapshot of almost everything that went wrong in the Philippines in the last years 
last six years, excuse me, go into that some. It's it's not just the, um, the well, the assassination, the uh, ex- yeah. summary execution of low-level drug dealers, but much more going on, a, a degradation of the political process, certainly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, that was something that I think came up uh, quite a bit uh, when I was doing the interviews um, for the for the piece. And like you said, her chief of staff, Philip, uh, who's quoted there, um, I think there's a feeling amongst you know, her supporters, especially the people that I spoke to that, like you said, the case, it's not just about uh, all, all these kind of things that, that were going on in the Philippines in the past six years kind of are, are highlighted in it. So, you know, aside from the initial kind of charges, then there is the politicization of the judiciary of, you know, the public prosecutor's office who, um, you know, Delima's supporters, you know, feel like this is kind of politically motivated and they're continuing on doing the bidding of the former president when they could just kind of, uh, you know, when they when they could have stood up and said no. So there's this politicization, I think, of the of the court system that they talk about. Um, there is the online kind of disinformation and harassment that she's uh, faced. You know, the Philippines, a place where there's like a huge online um you know huge internet penetration everyone's online um and we've seen with kind of some of the bigger platforms uh that it's it's a bit of a you know petri dish i guess for um trolls and for 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 things like that where you see a lot of trends that play out in the philippines end up kind of coming to other kind of countries and things like that so you saw a lot of this like online disinformation about her um that was obvious that was also viewed with a lot of misogyny um so so those kind of trends um you know i mean the, the online stuff is really it's really frightening i mean it's also it's interesting to, to observe when she was running for re-election she ran from re-election even though she was in in jail um and at one point there was like such a convincing kind of online rumor that she had died that, that her office had to put out a statement saying that she was still alive. So, uh, so there's that aspect to it. Uh, there are, there's, um, you know, yeah, that, like he said in, in, in the quote, I think there's just this, this kind of litany of things that have, that have taken place. And I think now there's a question of sort of, um, when the new president in office, um, you know, how far could you go to, to get those things back or, or, or kind of change, right? Um, and, and kind of reel back in some of the things that, that might have been that might have been lost or, or look like they're lost. Um, so, yeah, fascinating so, case. So sense. Duterte is gone. He was yes. replaced last year by, uh, as, as mentioned, President Ferdinand, Ferdinand Marcos Bongbong, so-called Bongbong yes. Marcos Jr., the eldest son of Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator who ruled the Philippines from 65 to 86. Marcos Jr. has made a point of restoring relations with the United States in, in other uh, Western countries. Um, Duterte, of course, had made somewhat of a turn toward China. You said that given the strategic interests, namely competition with China at the center of the regional agenda, Washington is incentive to embrace the Philippines' U.S. friendly president. Go into that a little bit. He was recently, uh, Marcos Jr. was recently feted in Washington. 
Yeah, he got quite the reception. He was in the White House, and uh, you know, there's an interesting moment um, with him um, and with Biden in the White House when, when the opening kind of remarks to the press. Biden jokes that that he had met um, Marcos before in the White House, uh, which is of course when he traveled there with his father um, to meet uh, Ronald Reagan. Right? It's because he was kind of. Uh, constantly part of his you know the family was very much part of marcos's kind of uh you know aura or appeal or things like that so he's he, he you know the older you know marcos he he often brought his family along with him on on, on these state visits and stuff and bong bong when he was younger was kind of always at his side at these things so there's a photo of him with, with, with ronald reagan uh which which biden alluded to um and i think yeah i mean do you know duterte ran was extremely kind of unpredictable um and at the beginning of his time in office tried to well i should say on the campaign trail said that he was going to kind of take a hard um you know line on china then got into office that wasn't the case um at, at all he kind of pivoted and 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 had you know a lot of commentary and comments about the u.s that made the the relationship i think pretty pretty rocky um for a number of years um you know he refused to to come to dc there wasn't many like high level he said a lot of things about obama that are probably not repeatable on the radio um and then he um and so he uh and then as he was leaving office you know i think duterte saw that the philippines public um was quite tired of the Kind of threats from from china and in particular in the philippines because it's a massive kind of archipelago the, the issue that really is the most kind of visible and tangible to a lot of people and that you see on the news there a lot or the people have experience with um is harassment from from chinese uh uh boats whether they're kind of naval boats or coast guard boats or or um fishing vessels encroaching into the philippines waters this is a very big kind of tangible issue um, you know, it is not kind of a far off, distant, uh, over the horizon uh, type thing. It, it, it's, it's happening quite quite frequently. You know, in the Philippines, the Coast Guard gets cut off by by Chinese cutters, and there's there's kind of this constant, um, you know, harassment that, that's happening. Right. So Duterte, on the way out of office, I think tried to kind of pivot back to a more "I'm going to be tough on China" type thing for the last maybe six months, year of, of his administration. Um, so that was kind of an interesting little, little, uh, you know, on the way out, he, I think he kind of saw that the public was, uh, he's hugely, hugely, hugely popular, but that was the kind of the one issue he was off the market with, with the public when he, you know, and then he changed his tune on that a little bit on the way out. And then Marcos came into office having an interesting, to say the least sort of experience with the United States, when his father fled the Philippines. In 1986, they left from a U.S. air base, uh, Clark, uh, which at the time was controlled controlled by the U.S. I think it was the largest military U.S. military institution, you know, overseas. Um, they flew to Guam, then they flew to Hawaii. His father lived, and him, uh, his family lived in exile in, in Hawaii until his father died in 1989, and then the family was allowed to return in 1991. Um, so, so you know, Bong Bong has. I would say uh, 
and of any head of state, the most kind of interesting or intriguing sort of relationship with the United States, given that, you know, he was like in exile and, and the Reagan administration essentially allowed them to live, um, you know, freely, um, despite what had occurred in the Philippines under his father's watch. Um, so, so when he was, he was elected, oh no, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say that, that taking all that into account, uh, and the fact that Marcos Jr. has moved the, moved the country or is attempting certainly to move the country back toward a, a uh, sound footing, an alliance with the U.S., yeah. then one would think that it would be in the, his interest to um, show some leniency toward, or, toward uh, yeah. De Lima. Um, talk about that. Why has the case continued? Yeah. So, I mean, there is, right. You know, he, he has, um, certainly there was a, before he came into office, there was all this speculation of, uh, because, you know, his, his time in, in, in as a Senator and, and being, uh, also, uh, a representative or, or working in the government and where his family's power base is Marcos, um, there wasn't a ton to go on, on on sort of, I guess, foreign policy. So the, when he came into office, there was a lot of speculation from various analysts and people saying, oh, he's going to be close to China, he's going to be close to the U.S., he's going to this or that. Um, so far, we've seen him be, you know, he's pursuing a foreign policy that he claims is, there, which he calls independent, uh, you know, foreign policy, not relying on either kind of superpower, China or the U.S. Um, but I think definitely in, mostly pronounced in terms of defense has been very, very uh you know, close in a, in, a, in, a, in a big kind of shift back towards towards the U.S. And that leads up to your question is kind of why does this case continue going? Because the U.S. has lawmakers in particular, Dick Durbin, uh, Ed Markey, um, a few other people have been carrying on about this case for a number of years now. There are um, there's been some some. Uh, language about it in the appropriations bills. Um, uh, Ed Markey um, went to visit uh, Delima last year, I believe, or earlier this year, um, and saw her in prison. Um, you know, the reporting that, that I did with people who have been in discussions with this, it's something that's been brought up between lawmakers and the Philippine government for many, many, many years looking for a resolution. So I think what... Marcos is doing this, pursuing a path where he doesn't want to see be seen as kind of interfering in the court. Um, you know, he keeps saying it's up to the courts to decide, it's up to the courts to decide. Um, as he said that, that these cases have proceeded and, and they've all fallen apart. Um, so perhaps we're seeing him kind of it, seeing this kind of play out and it will just kind of bring itself to a resolution in, in that manner. Um, I think Delima and a lot of other people are questioning why he doesn't step in and just ask the DOJ to drop it entirely. Um, and then I think beyond that, the case itself, there's questions of will Marcos, uh, you know, go further and, 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 and look into why this case was brought, the, you know, what was behind it, who was driving it, things like that. Um, I think that's highly like uh, that, that's very unlikely. Um, and, you know, Delima's team, the other thing is that they would like to see him uh, look into Duterte's war on drugs and, and, and that open that whole thing up, uh, which I don't think he will do. 
uh, either, given that his, you know, Duterte's daughter is his vice president. Uh, and and uh, Marcos has also been very, very uh, outspoken against the, the ICC uh, for their continuing kind of probe into what happened. Uh, so, yeah, he's in a interesting position, um, you know, at, at the moment um, with the U.S. And I think there is a fear amongst people, you know, activists um, uh, in the Philippines that what we'll see is a U.S., that was very outspoken during Duterte's time that was, you know, questioning his war on drugs and, and, and it was very critical of him that all of that will be dialed back now uh, because Marcos is in office and he is very pro us uh, and that they will be much uh, kinder and gentler and kind of deal with him with kid gloves because strategically he's a very important partner. Um, so I guess, you know, we'll see, it's still kind of uh, early in his administration, um, you know, and so I think we'll, we'll kind of see how that plays out, how the U.S. Philippines relation, uh, you know, is shaped by that. Obviously, this is all colored by his father's, uh, you know, rule and the fact that the U.S. at the time, I mean, under Reagan was was very supportive of of the original, you know, Marcos and, and dictatorship because they saw him as a very strong defender against com the creep of communism uh you know in the pacific so they were willing to look the other way while all this terrible things were happening in the philippines um because again because his father was seen as a as a very strong geopolitical ally you know that so, take that takes me to a question uh that i've been thinking about over the past several years i've seen some reports i uh, uh and i've heard from uh, accounts from uh filipino activists that i know that at some level, the drug war was a cover for attacks on social and political activists. Assassinations were being carried out. Have you ever seen anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, there's there's unfortunately a lot of political, you know, violence in the Philippines um, and a long history of things like red tagging, uh, of especially kind of leftist, you know, communist activists or people. By red tag. By red tagging, you mean? Um, yeah, people being, I guess, falsely accused of being communist or communist sympathizers, which sometimes can have like huge impact on them, on their lives. Obviously, the worst cases, you know, they're they're kind of, you know, they can end up being, you know, killed. Other times, kind of, you know, run out of their houses and kind of social stigma and all that kind of thing. Uh, lots of rumors online. So, um, so yeah, and, and I think there is certainly uh, the Philippines under Duterte was uh, a much more you know dangerous and harder place to be uh, an activist and to be a, you know a lot of journalists covering this stuff and some of them afterwards. Um, so yeah, I mean I think I think that there, well you said there certainly is that feeling amongst <laughs> amongst people. Um, that that was the case. Um, but then again, you know, as I mentioned on the flip side, Duterte amongst the public um, stayed uh, tremendously popular when he left office. I mean, there's different polling from different places, but some of it say that his, you know, his popularity rate was like 80%, uh, you know, the highest they've ever recorded when he, when he left office in 2022. So sometimes it's hard to square, I think, <clears throat> you know, what you see is these, uh, as, as what's happening. Um, and, you know, you read the reports from, from, from UN special rapporteurs or what the ICC says, and then kind of 
uh, look and see that that Deuterge again still commands like a huge amount of of popularity amongst the amongst the public. Let's go back to the chronology. That is, De Lima was elected uh, to the Senate in uh, May of 2016 on the same yep. day that Duterte won the presidency. Um, yep. in, in a landslide, it should be added. Um, yes. And um, early in, Duterte, as we've said, early in Duterte's presidency, reports emerged of mounting extrajudicial killings. And then De Lima, as head of the Senate's Committee on Justice and Human Rights, announced an, an investigation. So what was the response? You tell us that for De Lima, things got worse from there on. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, she had had this original sort of investigation when she was running, uh, when, when she was outside um, of the Senate, when she was uh, in 2008, 2009, when she uh, was head of the Human Rights Committee uh, of the Philippines, when she had first kind of looked into into. Uh, Duterte when he was in Davao. Now, uh, what Delima says is that that investigation never, never kind of had concrete action or charges behind it because of people were either afraid or um, uh, or really uh, kind of enraptured with Duterte. So a lot of witnesses and people involved in what was going on didn't want to speak. Um, so it kind of it fizzled out a, a little bit. Fast forward to what you're talking about, um, you know, when she opens this investigation from the Senate, uh, it is different in the way that it's much more high profile. Um, obviously, you're talking about the, the president of, of a country. Uh, and then what happens is she gets testimony from uh, she gets, you know, two guys to come to, to the Senate and uh, to give testimony that's, uh, you know, broadcast on live TV and kind of becomes this much boss event uh, who are, uh, you know, who are claimed to be hitmen who have, have taken part in, in, in these killings. Right. So they're giving this incredibly chilling kind of haunting testimony um, in in the Senate. Uh, it becomes, you know, obviously the massive political uh, kind of story for, 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 for ages. And this is what, you know, Delima has always said that she's been missing in the previous investigation. She didn't have these kind of eyewitness testimonies. Now she has them from these, from these two individuals, right? Um, and all, it's not just victim, it's not just victims anymore. Um, and they that, I they think also really, implicated Duterte, is that correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. So they, they, they talked about Duterte's role in this in, in Davao uh in these killings and so that i think is a real kind of turning point where i think it gets you know much more serious in terms of you know what's being said and the implications and what could actually actually happen uh in terms of uh you know for for, for duterte and people involved in this um he denied the these particular allegations though i should say and i think it says in the story that in the past he has claim that he was at various locations where people were killed or involved in killings or kidnapping. So, you know, he, he's talked a lot uh, about this, this kind of, you know, this type of stuff. So, um, yeah, so then, you know, then you see kind of the force of politics come around to, to Delima in a big way. She loses her seat um, in the, the, the position that she has heading that, that committee, um, she, she's it's, it's voted to be vacated. Manny Pacquiao, the boxer uh, who people might know uh, from his from his 
bouts with Floyd uh, Mayweather, who's now a senator in the Philippines, is the one who kind of started that movement. So she loses her seat. Um, there's huge online kind of disinformation, disinformation campaigns about her. Uh, Duterte starts kind of openly threatening her. He says that she should kill herself. Uh, he starts telling people that there's sex tapes of her with her driver that he has, that he's watched, that he's going to show up to the Pope. Um, and so, uh, and so this gets like, you know, reaches this kind of fever pitch and then, and then she ends up being arrested. Um, so I think you can really see how it goes downhill, like quite quickly and is kind of building towards something though. I'm not sure if people thought, um, uh, the arrest would be, uh, you know, in the cards given her, given her background. So she was arrested on February 24th of 2017. What happened then? Yeah, so, um, you know, immediately I think there was a lot of outcry that um, these charges, um, you know, were politically motivated, that they were kind of trumped up, which she was saying, um, you know, from the beginning. Um, so Delima, it's obviously still early in her senatorial uh you know, uh, posting. So, so she's been elected 2016, she gets arrested. So while she's uh, at Camp Crane, which is the headquarters of the police, um, kind of a notorious facility where political prisoners were kept under Marcos, uh, she's living there, uh, you know, in jail there. Um, and she's running essentially her, uh, her office, uh, fulfilling her senatorial duties from from jail so she had a staff of people that um you know the, her senate staff uh that worked with her that would send drivers to pick up documents drop documents off check things off um so she kind of continues on doing her duties as a senator from from jail um and which is kind of remarkable um that she didn't you know but i think she was very determined not to resign not to sort of like give in any more than she she had to to this um so she keeps running she keeps you know working um takes up like a huge writing campaign i think she was writing kind of commentaries about different world events weighing in on on, on kind of different things writing letters to other political prisoners that would get um you know published in various places um and so as this is going on as she's working the cases are kind of progressing um you know the philippines the court system extremely slow um you know even at the best of times um so i think obviously her with her knowledge of of the judicial system knew that this was going to be a long time i don't think she anticipated it to be as long as it has been or i think she did think at some point she would get bail uh but to this point she has not been granted bail let's go into some broader context hopefully in in which the plight of delima might rest marcos jr bong bong has been working to repair ties with Washington, as we already mentioned. But how might yep. that how might that possibly figure in uh, to Delima gaining her freedom, if at all? Yeah. So, I mean, her argument, uh, and I exchanged letters with her um, during this process, um, and then I went and saw her in court. And her argument uh, is that uh, is that he could just direct the DOJ to drop the remaining case. Right. So there was three cases to begin with. Two of them have failed. They've been dismissed. Uh, one of them is still ongoing. Um, so, so her um, argument is that he, as the president of the Philippines, could just direct the DOJ to to wrap this whole thing up, and be done with it. Uh, he has again 
as I said earlier, said that he doesn't want to do that, that he just will let the courts decide that he won't kind of interfere, uh, which Jolima tells me she's thankful of because she saw Duterte is kind of actively meddling in this. So she thinks that uh, Marcos's approach is better, though she would expect kind of more from him. Um, I should say that they've only, you know, heard Marcos, uh, to my knowledge, what she told me, they've only spoken once. And that's when she was held hostage uh, in October uh, 2022 by a fellow inmate who was trying to escape from prison uh, after she was after the hostage taker was killed. Um, Marcos called. Uh, the prison because he had heard what happened uh, and spoke to her briefly. Um, and so that's that's really the kind of only contact uh, from my understanding that the two have had with each other. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I think um, that's what she would like to see happen. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, maybe we'll just see this other case also kind of fall apart like the other ones have. Uh, and that will kind of, you know, be it. And this whole thing will kind of just sort of fizzle its way out. Uh, that that's certainly one way it could go. Um, the third case could have perhaps better legs and maybe actually like uh, carry on. Um, but it, I should say that the other cases haven't just fallen apart. Um, they have exposed, I think, what was going on a little bit behind the scenes. The people, the key witnesses have recanted their testimony and said that they were pressured by the previous government to give those testimonies that they were threatened, that their families were threatened, that they were coerced into giving false testimony against her. Um, so it's kind of spectacular um, recantments from two people in particular, two key witnesses in particular, <clears throat> that killed, um, that killed the cases. Uh, so they haven't just kind of, it hasn't just been a, you know, they ran out of steam or the cases didn't go well, the jury didn't decide. They've been shown to be, have been kind of setups. You're listening to Timothy McLaughlin, a writer for The Atlantic. We're talking about uh, political events around the case of Lila de Lima in the Philippines. Let's, you allude, Timothy, uh, to what de Lima and her supporters uh, point to as the, this kind of dynastic clan-like nature of Philippine politics. Uh, long dominated by a few powerful families. Talk about that some. I, I, it just, when you start laying it out, as, as we did before we went on the air, I, I said, yeah. oh, I didn't realize how, how well, yeah. how, how kind of crazy it is. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly has its roots, I think, um, you know, in the American colonialism uh, in the Philippines, uh, you know, through land ownership and empowering a kind of a few families, it's carried on, right? And so uh, the, it's hard, you know, I think when, when you bring this up to people to say, oh, that, you know, in every country, there's a few big political families and stuff. Uh, yeah, and not to the extent generally that, that it is uh, in the Philippines, where really a few families have dominated politics um, in, in the way that they have. You know, there's some academic studies about just how many people uh, representatives in the Philippine Senate are members of like certain families and the numbers are just like hugely, hugely high. And so if we use the kind of Marcos as a, an example, um, you know, they came, the family came back in, in 1991 to the Philippines uh, and kind of began very quickly kind of rebuilding its, its political, political dynasty. Um, uh, and it really paid off in a campaign, I think, of, of kind of whitewashing the family's kind of, uh, of history 
um, coupled with the popularity of, of, you know, this idea that, that Marcos ruled over this kind of golden age of the Philippines uh, really paid off um, during the last election. So Marcos Bongbong is elected president. Uh, his sister is a senator and head of the Foreign Affairs Committee within the Senate. Uh, his son is a congressman. Uh, his first cousin is a speaker of the House. Uh, his nephew is the governor of Ilcos Norte, which is kind of the, the family traditional power base, uh, the position that he used to have, his sister also used to have. Um, I mean, it is really, really kind of a remarkable web, uh, you know, of, of, of position power and places they, that are held. Duterte kind of um, interesting in that he sort of seems to be building his own sort of dynasty, uh, you know, that, that is kind of intermingled with the Marcoses a bit because his daughter, Sarah, uh, is now vice president <coughs> uh, under uh, under under Marcos, um, though that relationship has appeared to be sort of uneasy at times. It's kind of these like clan-like kind of marriaging of, of two big families um, uh, politically. Uh, but at times it's seen on, on kind of uh, to be on uneasy footing. And I should say that that, that for listeners that in the Philippines, um, you know, the vice president, and the president don't have to be from the same party. Um, so under Duterte, you saw a vice president who was very much uh, outspoken, kind of, you know, human rights advocate while Duterte was president. Right. So, uh, you know, you don't have to be from the same. Uh, they're voted on separately. It's not like, like you say so you could be you know, from, from a totally different kind of political spectrum. So you have Sarah Duterte and Marcos who currently have this kind of uneasy alliance. I think there's a lot of predictions that, that Sarah Duterte will obviously run, will probably run for president in 2028. Um, so you'll see this kind of, again, this dynastic family thing kind of carry on uh, where she could possibly would be, you know, possibly be president, which position that her father held, et cetera, et cetera. She used to be, uh, you know, politician from Davao where her father was a politician before, uh, yeah, just so many. I mean, you could really fill a wall with photos and do the string thing, connecting everybody. Um, it's just really, really uh, remarkable how how far these these kind of networks go. So you have Marcos as president, Duterte's daughter, yes, as vice president. As vice president, yes. How does that how does that relate to the apparent reluctance or, or of Marcos to drop charges against Delima, if at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you know, her supporters. I think you know, Delima supporters certainly think think that it uh, that it does that that it that it has something to do with this, right? That um, that Marcos sort of needed Duterte's um, you know popularity and, and and kind of the power base that he built to be elected president. Hence, he uh, formed this political allegiance with Sarah. Um, they sort of ran, um, you know, together um, in the in the election, and I think a lot of uh, Delima supporters would say that that Marcos is uh, very cautious in upsetting Duterte's uh, father or daughter. That he that he's concerned that that upsetting one of them or going against them would would kind of uh, that they could sort of marshal their support against him rather than for him. Um, so a lot of people will say that uh, that what's going on now is sort of a holdover or, or I guess sort of uh, born out of that uh, kind of uneasy relationship that 
that uh, you know Marcos won't go after Duterte in terms of you know looking into what happened with the drug war or backing the ICC or things like that because he is worried about kind of upsetting that side of the political alliance. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, uh, I think we see the, this interplay of you know <laughs> of family politics and and a lot of you know speculation and rumors on, on you know who's uh, kind of pulling the strings here and there, uh, and these kind of all get borne out in this in this case. You've suggested that attempting to investigate Duterte's uh, criminal drug war or backing the ICC, New National Criminal Court. Uh, would ha- could have political consequences for Marcos. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know what I just what I just spoke about, right? That that, that the support that he ha- that he draws from Duterte's base, um, you know, that could vanish or that that could kind of be marshaled against him. Um, you know, if if he did look into this stuff. Now, that's assuming that he kind of that he, you know, maybe he doesn't want to at all. Maybe he just he he, you know, has. The, the ICC, I think, case is different in the sense that it has been sp- kind of spun by Duterte and kind of something that, that continues on with Marcos as this kind of infringement on Philippines, right? It's this outside body that's looking in, it's meddling in the Philippines that 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 is, um, you know, um, that is, is kind of, uh, there's there's this kind of foreigner, <clears throat> anti-foreigner sentiment behind it uh, of them kind of like coming in and throwing their weight around and bullying the Philippines. Um, and so Duterte pulled pulled uh, the country out of the ICC, right? He, he terminated the, the um, you know, the agreement with the, with the court. And then Marcos has gone further and said that he's cut off all contact with the court, that even though there's this ongoing probe, he'll have nothing to do with it. They won't speak to the court or anything like that. Um, Very analogous. And again, very, you know, there's a kind of parallel with the United States refusing to honor the yes. International yes. Criminal yes. Court. And so these, yeah, in, a sense, in it, a sense, these client regimes are regimes uh, very much under uh, U.S. aegis uh, say, well, yeah. if if the empire can do it, so can we. Yeah, absolutely. You'll see that, you know, like, you, you'll hear that kind of talk exactly from, from them saying, oh, well, you know, the, the U.S. has nothing to do with it. You know, why should we uh, do it? it? It's just a, a court that only exists to bully, you know, smaller states or, or you know, places that don't have the, the money and power that other big states do. Uh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's definitely, I, I think, part of it as well. Um, and so... Yeah, so so it's not like I said the, the wheels of international justice is a long time turning. Where where the ICC court, like, you know, where the probe will end up or what we'll discover, how far we even get, I think kind of remains to be seen. It's a it's a long kind of slow process. Um, though they did reopen it, um, the probe last uh, only a few months ago, which which is what prompted Marcos to to say that he wouldn't have any kind of contact with them, that the Philippines would would wouldn't respond to anything from them. Um, you know, and, and it would kind of carry on this this position from his predecessor. You talked earlier um, for a moment about how the this dy- dynastic uh, political system uh, is in, in part a legacy of U.S. colonialism in the in the Philippines. Uh, people such as Alfred McCoy here at the University of Wisconsin, uh, yes, has yeah, written, yeah, yeah, has written about uh, the violence as an, another legacy. Uh, yeah. uh, of that of that American rule, uh, U.S. rule over, well, in various stages uh, since since well the Spanish Spanish American Philippine War. Yeah. 
Talk about that a little bit, the violence as legacy, uh, the the corruption that comes uh, from... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a tendency, I guess, maybe... um, I was talking to Frank Wisner, the former uh, U.S. ambassador to the Philippines, um, during the the early 90s recently, um, for another story that I'm working on about this U.S.-Philippines relationship. Um, Yeah, and and he was saying that... that, uh, there's a real tendency for for America, uh, for history books and for maybe for the general public that there's not a lot of knowledge about kind of what happened with the American colonialism in the Philippines, um, you know, really how horrific things were there. Um, and there was, you know, massacres and extreme violence um, and that went on for quite a, quite a long time in an attempt to, uh, you know, quote unquote, pacify, uh, you know, the local population. Um, something that I think is maybe, you know, not talked about or forgotten about or documented very far away. You know, America is a place that's not really associated, uh, of course, like the British are with, with colonialism, with that kind of, uh, you know, rule, but certain that, that absolutely happened, you know, in the Philippines. Um, and that was, you know, absolutely, again, a horrific kind of uh, time period. Um, and then I think you see that, carry on, you know, the, the U.S. And the, and the Philippines became allies in 1951. Um, but, you know, I think there's arguments to be made about, you know, that the, the footing was obviously very unequal. Um, the U.S. had a massive military presence uh, in the Philippines up until 1991 um, when they were voted, you know, when the Philippine Senate um, voted by a just a, a margin of just one vote, twelve to eleven, to to have the U.S. vacate their their bases that were that were in the Philippines, um, and even then, um, you know, a few years later, in the late nineties, the U.S. signs another set of kind of um, uh, defense agreements where they've pretty much now had rotating, you know, rotating troops. There's still now back to being kind of a very large uh, U.S. presence, military presence in the Philippines. Um, so all of this, I think, you know, colonial legacy Clark Air Base that we mentioned earlier, um, you know, one of the largest military institutions uh, or installations in the world, you know, was founded back in the in the in the colonial times, and the U.S. held on to that till 1991. Um, so yeah, this legacy, I think, it, we, we really see bear out and kind of for a long time is, is on the military front and the U.S. military presence in the Philippines, which. Um, you know, has had moments again that it's become sort of national news in 2000, uh, early 2000s. There was a, you know, Marine kind of rape case that got a lot of attention. There was a transgender woman who was killed by a U.S. Marine um, in not not too far from one of the big naval bases. Um, you know, there's been questions about how the U.S. Uh, or I shouldn't say questions. There's, there's plenty of academic studies and looks at kind of how the U.S. military presence um, you know, drove the sort of, you know, sex tourism, you know, illicit economy around the bases, um, tens of thousands of, of children that were fathered by U.S. servicemen uh, who were left behind in the Philippines, who now face, you know, stigmatization um, and, you know, a lot of them living in not great conditions. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of this. And it's still, you know, in my mind, <clears throat> it's interesting um, and and kind of you know, it's something to, to, to look into and interesting and fascinating for, for me, I think, and for reporters, because it really was not that long ago. 
you know, the vote for the, for the U.S. to leave the Philippines military bases, like I said, happened in 1991. This is not like, you know, ancient, again, British, uh, you know, holdover Burma or something like that that happened decades and decades ago. It's still quite, uh, yeah, it's still quite, it's still quite new. And, uh, and you see this relationship again, kind of evolving now. Um, and, and some questions being raised, especially by progressive kind of leftist groups, though I should say there is big support for the U.S. in the Philippines. Um, but yeah, the progressive groups kind of asking, you know, why they're being so welcoming to bring back U.S. Um, you know, forces and things like that, and, and if there should be more of a reckoning with the with the colonial legacy. So yeah, just a fascinating topic. Um, you mentioned Alfred McCoy; he's probably done more on it than, than anybody else. Um, so yeah, an interesting time period now to see how that's all playing out. Well, Timothy McLaughlin, we're right down to the end, coming to the end here. I want to thank you ever so much. Uh, a quick word. we got maybe a minute. Uh, what do you have in the hopper? What are you working on? Um, another story, actually, on uh, U.S.-Philippines relations, this time uh, more about the military uh, uh, Marcos, the military. Um, when I was over there to, to meet Delima and do this project, I was also there for the U.S.-Philippines uh, joint military exercises the largest ones they've had in the history of these joint exercises, which have been run for like almost 40 years now. Um, so kind of a look at the U S militaries, uh, when they were voted out of the Philippines and now how they've kind of ended up coming back in, how, uh, you know, the, the politics in the Philippines has kind of shifted. So, well, again, I want to thank you, Timothy McLaughlin, uh, talking to us from Singapore correspondent, uh, writer for the Atlantic magazine, Keep up the word. Keep up the good work. Thanks thank so you much. very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I, of course, want to thank uh, our producer, Jay Deseri Ramos, for, well, connecting all the way to Singapore. Thanks, Jade, and uh, Chuck, our engineer, and all you listeners. And, uh, you know, this is pre-recorded, of course, so there's no there was no callers today. But you can call next week. I'll be I'll be here next week. Broadcast in sedition, like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition, commandeering airways from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded with information.